So there's an old joke that, that I'm sure many or, or most of you have, have heard before about these two hikers who are out, and they're hiking in, in the woods, and they're on the trail, and, and they see off in the distance this bear, and, and it's still a ways off, but, but it's, a, it's approaching them, and it sees the hikers, and it's coming toward them, and, and so they initially kind of freeze in, in fear until one guy, one guy takes off his backpack, he bends down, and he, he pulls out some running shoes, and he begins to switch out his, his hiking boots with, with his running shoes. And, and his hiking buddy looks at him and says, Man, wh- what are you doing? You can't outrun that bear. And the first guy, as he's putting on his running shoes, he just says, he says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. And I think the simple truth that is communicated by that story is that you should never hike with bears. It's pretty obvious. Uh, no, I think it's that. It's that fear can sometimes lead us to, to some self-centered actions. Fear can send us into self-preservation mode, even sometimes to the extent that the, that the concerns, the well-being, the needs of others are sort of neglected or, or forgotten about or pushed away in the name of, of self-preservation and self-centered action. And, and I think we're going to see that principle on full display in some stories that we're going to look at this morning. We, we wrapped up our, our look at, at covenants last week, and, and we've been looking at some stories um, throughout the life of, of Abraham as part of that. And we're going to stick with Abraham for a couple of more weeks because I think there's more that, that we can learn from, from Abraham and, and more that we can take from his story connected to this overall theme of hope. And so that's what we're going to do today and next week. And so if you want to turn to Genesis 12, we're going to be there this morning. And our, the title of, of the lesson for this morning is The Selfishness of Fear. Uh, and it could alternatively be titled as Abram Goes South. And, and those may not sound like very hopeful titles to you. But where we're going to kind of arrive is, is this idea that that there is hope that we see in these stories and that we see in Abraham's life and that we see hopefully in our lives. There is hope in God's faithfulness. The, the sort of subtitle of this series is finding strength in, in God's faithfulness. And I think that's what we're going to see in these stories this morning. And so it may seem like we're sort of cherry picking some stories that, that put Abraham in a, in a bad light and that make him look, uh, look selfish and and, and fearful, and that's, that's intentional for our purposes this morning. But next week, we're going to kind of come back to the faithfulness uh, or to the righteousness and the faithful action of Abraham. Today is going to be more about the, the faithfulness of God and how we see that propelling the story, even in the face of Abraham giving in to some of his fears. So that's where we're going to go this morning. And so uh, with, with, with that kind of framing our, our lesson and with these, these two titles and that, that old joke framing all of our, uh, our, where we're going to go this morning, let's jump into Genesis 12. We're going to pick up in verse 10. And this is, uh, we're, we're going to look at several stories this morning. And so we're going to look at a lot of scripture, just fair warning, it's going to be a lot of scripture and so I'm going to be coming in and out and making comments kind of as we go. And so because of that, they're not going to be up on the screen as, as they have been in past weeks. So if you want to get your Bible, maybe um, 
more, more beneficial for you to have a Bible or your phone with you this morning to kind of follow along, or you can just listen as, as I read, whatever works best for you. But we're going we're gonna to notice this morning some detours that, that Abraham ends up taking on his journey. You can, you can make the case, I think, that even at the very beginning of his journey, there's this, this detour or this pause, at least, in Abraham's journey, Abram at the time in his journey. And there's another video that, that I put out this morning on the same channel that kind of looks at some of that and some possibilities there if you're curious about that. So we won't get into any of that this morning. We'll pick up in verse 10 of chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and, let you, and my life will be spared because of you. <laughs> uh, so this story, this is not a great look for Abram. And, and I know and I recognize it, it may look, probably does look even worse sort of from a modern lens and, and from, from our current vantage point looking back, it even looks worse perhaps than, than what it looked like at the time. But, but even in its context, this is not a good look for Abram. And we're going to see that, I think, in the ways that others respond to his actions. Uh, and even God himself is, does not seem pleased with, with what's going down here in Egypt. And even at the beginning of the story, we're, we're told that there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt. And, and that word there for went down is, is very much a word that connotes descending or declining. And, and so there seems to be this idea that this is, this is about more than, than Abram geographically going down into Egypt. That, there's, that this is about Abraham, Abram leaving, leaving the presence of God and, and going down and descending into Egypt, seemingly out of, out of fear. We have no indication that, that, that God is, is instructing him to do this. Maybe he is, and we just aren't told about it, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Because it seems that what's driving Abram is this fear of, of the famine that's in their land, and which, which makes sense because Abram's now in this strange place. He doesn't know anything maybe about his surroundings, and, and now there's a famine. And so, so maybe Abram thinks, I'm going to go to where I at least know I have some semblance of, of control over our food and our ability to stay alive. And so let's go down into Egypt. Let's, let's leave this place, go down into Egypt, even if it puts us at, at risk, at least in terms of our, our relationship, right? And he seems to be pretty resigned to the fact that as they go into this, other men are going to be so attracted to his wife that not only must he pretend to be her brother instead of her husband, but, but he, he assumes and, and he knows that if they, they go in with this arrangement, that he is going to be treated well on her behalf. He's going to be compensated for others being attracted to his wife, which is, that's, 
that's shady <laughs> uh, at best. <laughs> and, and so that's, that's the situation that they go into Egypt with, though. So picking back up in verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was very beautiful, was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. In other words, things are going just as Abram predicted they would. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Uh, so, so Abram sort of ends up kind of making out pretty well in this. I mean, he leaves with accumulating a lot of stuff. And, and just in case you think, hey, this seems like an unlikely scenario that, that Abram would have been killed, especially based on Pharaoh's words there, let's remember that, that later on in the story, David himself, David, a man after God's own heart, sees a, a beautiful woman who he can't resist, and he takes her into his palace and ensures that her husband is killed in battle. So this isn't like completely unheard of that this would happen. doesn't make it right at all on, on behalf of Abram, but, but it's probably not a completely unwarranted fear either. And so they, they leave now with all this stuff in tow. And, and again, maybe this is sort of applying a modern filter to it, but but I have to imagine that was a quiet trip back home. <laughs> that, was a, that was probably an awkward trip. And, and I wonder if, like, I wonder who breaks that silence. Like, does Abraham try to make a joke at one point to kind of cut the tension? It probably wouldn't be a great idea. Or maybe do, do they pull back into the, to the driveway? Maybe they had a driveway. Do they pull back in and after this long, silent trip back home. And does Sarai look over and, and say to Abram, I know I keep calling him Abraham, Abram. He's Abram still at this point. Does Sarai look back over at Abram and say, we are never doing that again? Let's turn over to Genesis 20. because that doesn't seem to be how it went down. Genesis 20, picking up at the very beginning of the chapter. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev. We're going to pause already, uh, because the, the from there is, is the region of, of Hebron, Hebron, and that's where the great trees of Mamre are that we talked about last week. And, and Hebron means friend or, or friendship or, or community, fellowship. It's this idea of, of togetherness. And Abram himself is, is called, uh, or he's Abraham now at this point. Keep, you know who I'm talking about, same guy. Um, uh, Abraham is called a friend of God. And so Abraham is going from this place 
where he's built an altar from God and he has, has uh, experienced community and, and fellowship with God. And he's, he's moving from this place where he has been near to God and a friend to God. And he's going into the Negev. And Negev means dry place, barren, wilderness. The Negev was the desert. The Negev was south. And so he goes from this place of fellowship and community with God, and he moves again away from God into the dry place. And there lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, She is my sister. So, new names, same story. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I, I know that you did this with a clear conscience, so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Uh, so once again, God doesn't seem pleased with everything that's happening in this same situation that's already played itself out. Uh, but in neither situation does God chastise Abraham directly, at least as we're told. And, and again, we're going to kind of come back to that next week. So just kind of tuck that away and, and we'll, we'll pick up some of that in, in what we look at next week. But, but God seems to come down harder on, on Abimelech almost here. And, and Abimelech picks up on that. He says, hey, wait a minute. Like, my hands are clean. Uh, here's, here's all the steps that, that I've gone through. I've got a clean conscience. I've got clean hands. And, and God says, yeah, I, I, I know. But this guy who's been deceitful, he's a prophet, and he's going to pray for you so that you can live. Like, that's odd. That's just a strange setup. And, but but that's, that's what we're left with here. So, picking up then in verse 8. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned, summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And so it is Abimelech here. It's Abimelech who points out something really important for this story, I think, for both of these stories. It's Abimelech who points out that Abraham's actions that are based out of fear are putting others at risk and are putting others in harm's way. They, they have the potential to bring guilt upon other people because of, of Abraham's fearful actions. And because Abraham is giving in to, to this fear and acting in, in this way, 
And that's putting other people at risk. It's putting other people in harm's way. And it's, it's interestingly Abimelech who has to point that out for us, uh, or at least has to point it out for Abraham. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, and this is a doozy of a response, so just get ready. I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. <laughs> like, in other words, hey, it's your fault. It's, it, it's y'all's fault for being such godless heathens that you'll just kill a man for his wife. So how dare you, right? This is, this is on you, really. You forced my hand. Besides, this is a nice little nugget, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. So, so like, hey, it wasn't completely a lie. Was it deceitful? Yeah. Was it a lie? Eh, not really. You know, and hey, she was my sister first, and then she just sort of, she became my wife. Almost as if he's like, I'm not even really sure how it happened. Like, she's my sister, somehow she became my wife, and here we are. So, then he says, And when God had me wander from my father's household, so it's also God's fault, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. This seems to be Again, a pretty self-centered view of love seems to run counter to, you can just pull the description of love that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 13 and hold that against everything that Abraham does and, and the, Abraham's actions don't, don't coincide very well with that list that we find there, right? This isn't a type of love that protects. Uh, this isn't a type of love that, that is patient. This, this isn't a type of love that, that looks after the interest of others. We could keep going on and on. And this seems to be a, a long-standing, purposeful decision that Abraham has made based out of fear for his own life. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, who again gains from everything going on. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Interesting distinction there of Sarah, his wife, because it continues. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. In other words, just get away from me. I'm tired of you. Please leave. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. <laughs> like that's, that's my favorite line in the story. That's just rough. Like that one has to sting, Abraham. Like, uh, oh man, I am giving your brother. Like he gave, he gave Abraham back his wife. Then he says to Sarah, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So these are just, these are wild stories. And, and, and what I appreciate about them, though, is that they give us 
this completely unvarnished picture of Abraham's humanity. Like we have this guy who is, who is the father of, of faith. He becomes the father of this great nation and, and, and is still referred to and, and known as, as the, the father of, of all who, who profess faith in Jesus. And he's talked about glowingly throughout the, the New Testament writings. And, and he's this man of, of action we see repeatedly in, in his own story. Like between these two accounts, he rushes into battle to, to save his nephew Lot. Like Abraham is, is, is faithful and he's courageous, he's bold, he's compassionate. But he's also scared and hesitant and selfish and unsure of himself. So basically, you know, he's, he's human. He's a real person with, with struggles and, and flaws and he's, he's fragile and, and, and frail and, and everything else that goes into being a human. That's, that's who Abraham is. And so I think that the hope that we find in these two stories specifically is that there is hope in knowing that the story and that Abraham's journey progresses primarily because of God's faithfulness to Abraham, not because Abraham gets everything right. And and it would be absurd to expect Abraham to, to just pick everything up, head into completely uncharted territory, and do everything completely right. Like, we wouldn't have that expectation of anyone. And so it's only natural then that as we see Abraham moving forward, that there are moments when he goes down. There are moments when he descends into fear and into sin and when he makes bad decisions. But in those moments, there, there is God right there with him to hold him up with his faithfulness. And so Abraham continually finds strength and is able to persevere because of the faithfulness of God. And I think there's comfort and encouragement and hope that we can take from that. We're going to look at, at, at a bit of one more story before we're done because I think it, it just... It really brings some of this home, I think. And, and uh, it may not be necessary, but it's, but it's hard to talk about those two stories without talking about Genesis 26. This is a story about Abram's, Abraham's son, Isaac. Now, there was a famine in the land because the previous, uh, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. So we've got multiple connections here back to Abraham and his story. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. So, so God is saying here, don't go, don't do this. But again, another connection to, to Abraham, perhaps. Maybe this, is, this implies don't do what your dad did. Don't go down there to Egypt in a time of famine. That did not work well. Skipping over to verse 6. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, oh man, here we go again. She is my sister because he was afraid to say she is my wife. And so 
This is the first time that, that fear has been attributed directly to either Abraham or Isaac's actions. Like it's strongly implied with Abraham, but it's never directly stated that it's fear. And, and so I, I think the fact that we're told that here is this indication that like what other motivation would there be besides fear, right? That this is, this is all based on fear. He was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. Same thing Abraham said. When Isaac had been there a long time, so this isn't a short-term thing. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She really is your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? And so again, it's, it's Abimelech who picks up what is, what's going on here. And, and interestingly enough, Abimelech seems to be the only one learning from any past mistakes. Like Abimelech doesn't have to be told by God this time. Abimelech doesn't, doesn't bring Isaac in and say, why are you caressing your sister? He just says, what have you done? She's your wife. This is not like what? I'm just so tired of you people, Abimelech has to be thinking. And, and so in all three of these accounts, we aren't ever directly, uh, there's no direct mention of, of how this impacts Sarah or, uh, or Rebecca or the ways in which this puts them at risk. It's, again, it's implied. But in each account, it's, it's, in each account with Abimelech, it is Abimelech who exposes the ways in which these men are putting others at risk and in danger. And, and so he continues. Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who harms this man or his wife will surely be put to death. You see, if we aren't careful... If we don't deal with, with the sin and the fears in our lives, we, we run the risk of passing all of that down to the next generation. So Isaac ends up making the same exact mistake that his dad makes. And in all of these accounts, uh, again, the, the ways in which the actions of, of Abraham and Isaac, the, the, the ways that they put their wives in incredibly vulnerable positions aren't really directly addressed. But Abimelech calls out in no uncertain terms their self-centered and their selfish actions. And in acting out of fear and letting their fear lead them to, to these self-centered, self-serving, self-preserving actions, they, they leave their wives completely exposed, and they put others at risk as well. There is a selfishness to many of our unhealthy behaviors that, that are motivated by fear. And, and while it's not true of all of our fears, and, and while fear can be a, a, a positive motivator in some cases, many of our fears prey on inwardly looking concerns. We're afraid of, of what others will think of us. We're afraid of failing. We're, we're overly fearful of our own safety, for our own safety. And when we allow those types of fears to dictate our actions, when, when we give in to those fears, 
the resulting behaviors often come at the expense of the well-being of others. When we act selfishly out of fear, we, we damage relationships. We miss opportunities to serve and to bring light into the world. And we put others at physical, emotional, or spiritual risk. And we can then become entangled in sin that becomes a pattern in our life. And on the surface, some of those fears may not seem to have much of a relational or a communal impact. But I think we find when, when we hold part of ourselves back out of, out of fear of how that part of us will be received or what will happen if we move in that direction, the relationship or, or the community with which we are engaged suffers. And, we will, and, and it will never be all that it could be if we're not willing to risk our full engagement, the full engagement and commitment of our very selves. Something will always be missing. There will always be some sense of, of distance or, or there will always be some unrealized potential or, or something that isn't able to be realized if we allow our, our fears to, to keep us from, from moving forward in those ways. We come to much greater places of connection when we are, are fully able to be vulnerable with each other. And that means casting off some of our fears. When Paul encourages us to have the same mindset as Christ and, and to consider the needs of others above our own from a place of humility, he's encouraging us to love others in a way that drives out our fears. It's love that compels Christ to face the cruelty of the cross, and, and the image of the crucified Savior is the full embodiment of John's statement that perfect love drives out fear. So may we this morning find hope in the faithfulness of a God who works in and through those of us who are trying to overcome our fears, our pride, and the sinful behavior that results from those. May Abraham's story remind us that, that any path into uncharted territory, any new venture that will lead to growth, maturation, or, or deeper spiritual formation will not be one that comes without its detours. But our hope is in the faithfulness of God, not in our ability to make every correct turn and decision. And we are grateful for the grace of Jesus that covers our sin so that God remembers it, more, remembers it no more as we move forward in faith. So may we be bold as we move forward into the futures to which God is calling each of us as individuals, as families, and as community. May we love so fully that, that we drive out our, our fear, and in doing so, may we be willing to do the hard work of confronting our fear so that we are able to move away from the struggles that continue to result from this, from them. We're going to pray our, our prayer of confession now, and then we're going to share in a time of, of communion and of meditation as a video plays. And may we, may we consider how we may move forward in love rather than fear. We confess to each other and to you, our Creator 
that we fall short of being what we were created to be and what we have committed ourselves to be. Hear Hear us, us, forgive us, us, renew renew our resolve resolve to build build the the kingdom kingdom of Christ. Christ. We often seek out the easiest paths, paths of least involvement in places where we might be uncomfortable, or paths of self-centeredness. Hear Hear us, us, forgive us, us, renew renew our resolve to build the kingdom kingdom of righteousness. We confess that we have not loved you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Bring us out of darkness, Lord, and into the light of your love. Hear Hear us, us, forgive forgive us, us, renew renew our our resolve resolve to build the kingdom kingdom of light. Forgive us for getting so caught up in the world's trappings and its false messages of hope that we lose sight of the hope of the kingdom, which brings healing and peace to a world in turmoil. Hear Hear us, us, forgive forgive us, us, renew our resolve to build the kingdom of peace. May we resolve to become more kingdom-minded, to be peacemakers here and now. Amen. Amen.